name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. In this episode, we're turning our attention to the important issue of diversity. This has become a big focus for many firms in the financial sector for several years, but it's fair to say there's still a way to go, particularly when it comes to diversity in senior management positions. What's needed for this to change and what can firms do to ensure diversity at all levels of their organisation? Are quantitative metrics the answer or is a more holistic solution necessary? And how are current diversity initiatives being affected by the coronavirus pandemic? To help answer these questions, I'm joined by Scott O'Malia, ISDA's CEO. Scott, tell us about our guests today. Sure. Today, we're speaking to Tracy Jordal, Executive Vice President and former General Counsel at PIMCO, and now she is most recently head of PIMCO's European Operations and Trade Support. She's also CEO of Women in Derivatives, a nonprofit organization that aims to attract, retain, educate, and develop female leaders in the industry. Joining Tracy is Amanda Pullinger, CEO of 100 Women in Finance, a global organization that seeks to further the progress of women who have chosen finance as a career. Fantastic. Let's bring them straight on. Tracy and Amanda, welcome to The Swap, and thank you very much for joining us. As Nick mentioned, the industry is working to address the issues of diversity. It's critical that we all do a better job to bring greater diversity to our own organizations. At ISDA, we are working to make sure that we undertake training and we review and assess our own policies and the ways that we work to support a more diverse culture. And we hold our leadership teams accountable for various specific goals and objectives. Now, I'm very pleased to be able to speak with both of you to learn more about how your organizations are tackling this challenge and to help our listeners think about how they can take the right steps to support diversity throughout their organizations. Now, you both occupy senior roles in financial service industry and have been very strong advocates for diversity in this sector. Let's start with first principles. Why is diversity so important and how does it lead to better outcomes? Amanda, can we start with you? Sure, and it's wonderful to be uh, with you today and, and talking about this very important topic. I could go on and on about the studies that are out there that talk about why diversity produces better results. But I think that in the essence of why is it so important, what I'd say is we live in a complex world. And so as investors in that complex world, why would we want to come at an issue in a one-dimensional way? I actually think that better solutions come out of multidimensional approaches to a particular topic. So when we're looking at investing in a complex world, we need voices around the table who can assess risk in a different way, who can look at opportunities in a cultural context in a different way. So that's my number one reason for why diversity matters. Thank you. Tracy? Yes. Thanks, Scott. That's a great question. First, I want to say thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So why is diversity so important? I have to agree with everything Amanda just said. The world is not seen or lived just through one lens. We all come from different backgrounds, different experiences, and that's what is important for everyone to bring to the table. If we're all cut from the same cloth, you're not going to be innovative. You're not going to think in different ways. And when you have a diverse set of people, those people draw upon their unique experiences in order to help solve 
a question or come up with a solution. And when you have diversity of thought, you end up being more innovative, creative, and you think more strategically. Tracy, staying with you, let's think about it in practical experience terms. You've risen up through different roles in finance. What have been the biggest challenges for you? So I think the biggest challenge for me was really paving my own path and needing to figure things out on my own. When I entered into the career of finance and being a lawyer, I really didn't know what to do. To be honest, you know, I, I knew substantively what I was doing, but as far as career growth, it was really challenging. And I needed to take initiative. I needed to just pick up nuggets of advice here and there in terms of what to do in certain situations. And at the time when I started my career, we didn't have organizations such as Women in Derivatives or 100 Women in Finance to help guide me which is why I believe these, these organizations are really important and helpful. And for me, I was actually fortunate to have three people in my life that were very pivotal in my career, both men and women, who essentially supported me. And they were both mentors and sponsors. And that is what I found very beneficial. When I just got out of law school, the woman I was working for was completely supportive. She taught me everything she knew. And when she didn't know what, you know, everything to teach me, she, she connected me with other people to teach me that subject matter in derivatives and, and in other things. And so that's when I realized having someone to support you, to mentor, to sponsor you was really important because you could ask them, them questions, but they could also help guide you which is not always easy to find. Fantastic. Amanda, can you tell us about your experience? So my, my experience is very different from Trace's because I've had a bit of a schizophrenic career. I've actually worked in seven different industries. And the only thing that they have in common is they were all male-dominated. My access into the finance industry was through a friend of mine from Oxford who was running a hedge fund in the early 2000s. And he asked me to join him out of a situation where I had I had been working for a dot-com company, right? So in those early stages, I think without having thought about how that range of experience brought to my role in the industry something significant and something unique, I think I'd have felt like a complete imposter. So I think that was my challenge, was really understanding that actually all of those experiences brought me to a place where I could be a better partner in that hedge fund than if I hadn't have gone through all of those experiences. Let's talk about your organizations and how they support diversity in the sector. Amanda, let's start with you. We are now a global association. We're in 26 locations across four continents. We have over 20,000 registered members representing around 2,000 financial institutions range from you know hedge funds all the way to international banks to fintech firms we're a membership organization first and foremost we have a, a vision for the future so 20 years from now we have what we call vision 3040 which is that by 2040 we want to see 30 percent of investment teams be women and 30 percent of senior executive roles in the industry be women and how are we going to get there we're going to get there through 
at the mission that we've had from the beginning of this organization, which is empowering women in the industry. And we've added to that mission, inspiring the next generation of pre-career young women, advocating, educating them, providing them with role models. Because I think that role models really matter. This notion of saying, if she can do it, I can do it, I think is a really, really powerful incentive to bring more women into the industry and then to empower women in the industry to know they can get to the top, that there are people who've got to the top who look like them, et cetera. How do we empower women in the industry? We do it through a number of different mechanisms. I believe visibility, and we'll perhaps come to visibility a little later in the conversation. I believe visibility is a really critical piece to ensuring that not only women or women of color are seen in this industry as participating, but again, it's a really critical element that the industry and certainly the next generation can see that it's possible. So we provide visibility opportunities, educational opportunities. We create these peer groups uh, of women who are like-minded at a certain career standpoint. And we also have an impact collective that's really focused on what are we doing to inspire the next generation. And how do individuals join your organization? You just sign up on our website. But actually, it's more than joining. What I always say to people is that the the way to get the most out of 100 women is not just to join. It's not just to watch our webinars, uh, but it's actually to get involved in a committee. That extra step of volunteering and engaging increases your own visibility and really enables you to take on leadership opportunities outside of your firm um, in a way that's actually incredibly impactful on your career. Tracy is CEO of Women in Derivatives. How does your organization work? So Women in Derivatives, we are a much younger, I would say, and smaller organization as 100 Women in Finance. We haven't been around as long, but our mission, I believe, is the same. Our mission is to attract, retain, educate, and develop young women leaders in the finance industry. We have over 5,000 members primarily located in the U.S. on the East Coast and West Coast and developing down South and in the Northeast. But we are slowly expanding within Europe and our goal is to continue expanding globally. So we we take organizations such as 100 Women in Finance as the path that we want to go down and expand. I think having multiple organizations such as WIND and 100 Women in Finance is great because I think the more the better, right? The way we started to promote diversity in the sector is just by focusing on educating and attracting female leaders. We started off by having, creating networking opportunities around events organized around a particular subject matter. So we sought women subject matter experts to talk about a certain a certain topic and then created the opportunity for women to connect and network with one another at each of our events. But since then, we've grown. And certainly in the the pandemic and due to COVID, we've had to pivot in terms of our strategy because we're living in the virtual world and you can't, you don't have those in-person events. We've taken a segmented approach where 
we've looked at our membership base and we said, what do they need? What do they want? And how can we support them? So we look at our young professionals, our trailblazers, our rising stars, and actually also our what we call our male allies or male ambassadors, all important pieces in kind of the wheel of making sure this, this all works. And in that, we've had events throughout the year to help, you know, educate and create leaders throughout our industry. Let's talk a little bit about moving the needle in individual organizations and maybe what some of the steps your firms or your organizations are doing to help with diversity, not only within your organizations, but actually driving material gains in diversity at all levels. Tracy, let's start with you. And how do we move the needle even further? Sure. I think the most important is to invest across your talent pipeline, right? So it's very important for an organization. And that's what we do at PINCO. We organize our strategy around four pillars, which is attract, develop, retain, and engage. You need to be aware of unconscious biases and have programs to support employees professionally as well as personally so they don't have to choose between their jobs or other obligations and responsibilities. And to be honest, Scott, I'm a perfect example of that, a perfect example of how PIMCO has supported that. And throughout my career at PIMCO, I've been fortunate to have managers and people I work with who have been extremely supportive of my career. One of the key pivotal moments for me was when I was actually pregnant with my second child. And my husband, I was living out on the West Coast for PIMCO, and my husband had a job that brought him back to the East Coast. And I was thinking, okay, you know, I have two children. I'm going to have to to resign because that's what I need to do. But I loved my job and I loved my career. And so my boss at the time, I actually went into his office and was getting ready to resign. And he cut me off before even the words came out of my mouth. And he said, well, Tracy, why don't you just continue working from the East Coast? And I said, okay, we have a small office there. It's client facing. We don't have a trade floor. Do you think that's possible? And he said, of course. He said, to be honest, we do most of our work electronically. He said, just come back to Newport Beach once in a while. Just continue what you're doing from there. And I was completely surprised. It wasn't anything I expected. And I said, okay, why don't we give it a try? You know, if it doesn't work, no harm, no foul. I'll even help find a replacement for myself. But, you know, here I am. I've I've been at PIMCO ever since. I've been back in New York for over 10 years and it worked out perfectly. But if I didn't have someone like that who was very open-minded and supportive of me, I think I would have had a very different career path. So I think it's really important to have that and to foster that at organizations, to be open-minded, to understand that people come from different backgrounds, have different challenges, and you need to be supportive of that in many different ways and find solutions. That's a great example. Amanda, what what should organizations be doing to improve their numbers? So I'm going to take Trace's lead in terms of attract, develop, retain, and promote. There are many things that firms can do internally, but I do think that there is a place for external organizations to be helpful in that regard. So attracting You know, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the words, we can't find the women. And, you know, it is often in senior level roles. It's often in investment roles. 
And my answer to that is, well, you've come to the right place because we have the women. There is a massive disconnect between the industry and the diverse talent that is out there. I am not saying that there are thousands of women waiting for that PIMCO job in investing, right? But there are women out there and very often they don't see these opportunities. We are still in a place where the industry tends to use traditional ways of getting to talent. And what, what I would say, and, and again, it, it, you know, in, in agreeing with Tracy, the reason you want lots of different organizations out there is not just because I believe that you get different things from different organizations, but because each of those organizations give the industry an opportunity to find talent that they wouldn't otherwise find. So, um, so I would say that, uh, that that's the number one. Think outside the box. You are not going to find people if you do the traditional recruiting model. And so use organizations like 100 Women. I mean, we have a job board, um, but we also have opportunities for firms to be visible to potential candidates, to be saying in a webinar, by the way, here's an example of a senior woman on the investment side. You know, let's hear from her. That in and of itself creates opportunities to attract talent because it is very clear, it is a very competitive environment out there for talent. And women want to know two things, I believe, when they're looking for a job. One is, do you think I qualify, right? And the second thing is, what's the culture like for women at your firm? And so if we can kind of bridge that gap, I think think that's one way that you can attract more talent. Developing talent. So obviously, there are many things that firms can do internally. But I'd mentioned earlier that I always encourage women to engage with our organization and join a committee. One of the reasons to do that is that very often where firms aren't necessarily offering women leadership opportunities, we can. You can lead, you know, you can grow into a a leadership role within one of the committees and really kind of learn in a safe place how to lead how to be seen, how to be visible, how to do public speaking. Retention. I think one of the biggest things that we do not talk about in this industry is that very often women are the only one. They're often the only one in their role within their firm, the only one in their team. And there is a double whammy for women who are mothers in that very often in the communities in which they live, they're the only working mother. And I believe that psychological sense of being different and being the only one is one of the biggest reasons why women don't stick around. And so one of the things that we are very focused on is ensuring that we as an organization enable women in the industry to find their people. I've seen it so many times around the world where we've connected women with others like them, and that has taken the sting out of some of the challenges that they may face because now there are others that can go along that journey with them. So we we have various career stage groups, and we start with our next gen group, which is zero to 10 years experience in the industry. My goal with that group is that these are women who go through the industry, go through their career in the industry together on a journey, supporting each other, learning from each other. And I think 
this is going to be one of the keys to how do we how do we keep women, particularly in those tough roles like investing, where women are the only one. And then the final thing is promoting talent. And you ask, what can the industry do? Well, I have a I have a little cheat sheet of 10 ways that men can help move the needle for women in the industry. And my number one ask is think about the women that are in your team and give those women opportunities very deliberately for now. Give those women opportunities to be visible. So if you're a conference sponsor and you have a slot at a conference, look in your team for someone who is a woman who can speak as an expert to that particular topic. And if that woman isn't comfortable getting on the stage, get her a coach so that she is comfortable getting on the stage. We need to realize that we all as individuals have responsibility to create a more inclusive environment for everybody. So that's really my response to how organizations can really affect change in terms of diversity within their organization. Fantastic. I think every ISDA conference is, is complete when Tracy Jordal's on our stage. She's participated <laughs> in so many of these, and it's always good to have her expertise. Now, ISDA has uh, signed up for HM Treasury's Women in Finance Charter back in 2019, and this sets a uh, series of targets intended to increase uh, female representation across our board of directors and senior management. These are quantitative measures, and we sign up for these, and we're public about them so people can hold us accountable. Uh, how important are initiatives like these in accelerating the pace of change, being public about it? Amanda, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm probably going to say something quite controversial here. And, and this is my personal view. Look, I think measuring progress is very important. So I am not saying that we don't want to measure performance. What worries me about some of these initiatives in terms of counting the numbers, counting the percentages, and looking at it year by year by year, like, is we're not going to see change happen quickly. And I worry that by the changes being so being thought about in a very short-term perspective, that we are going to create diversity fatigue in the industry. One of the reasons that I am so pleased and proud that the board has taken on this vision 3040 that I talked about and given me 20 years to get to those results is that it enables me to try lots of different things. There is no magic bullet here. If this if this was a simple problem to solve, this is one of the smartest industries in the world, we'd have solved it. But it's because it's complex and because there are many different angles to it. Some of it is systemic. Some of it is psychological. It's very complex. So I think to solve this problem, we need time and we need the ability to experiment and try lots of different things. And so while measurement is good and necessary, I think that we've got to put alongside that the opportunity and the freedom to be able to try lots of different things, to then take a pause, to reflect back on what's worked, what hasn't worked, to double down on those things that have worked and then move forward. So I worry about this annual reporting that it, to some extent, 
is creating an environment where we have to prove that this and that and the other is, is working right now. This is a long-term, people talk about the pipeline issue. We can't solve for some of this overnight. And so, again, I would say that measuring is good. Scrutiny on the year-by-year changes is bad because we've got to be much more holistic and we've got to be able to find lots of different ways of, of moving the needle, not just a, a kind of a one-dimensional way of looking at it. Tracy, what about you? Targets, good, bad, indifferent? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. Actually, I, I don't think what Amanda said is controversial at all. I actually agree with everything that she said. Change won't happen overnight, right? It's not something that would happen immediately. And you don't want to set yourself up for failure. But change is important and you need catalysts. You need catalysts such as these initiatives to affect or to start that change. So I think having initiatives such as this and others that are similar to it are important because it keeps it on the forefront. It keeps it on the forefront of conversation and it keeps it on people's minds. I agree with both of you, actually. And you mentioned failure. We've kind of taken the approach that failure is not an option. And not only do we set targets, but we also hold including myself, are executives accountable. And there is a compensation feature that if you do miss your targets, you don't achieve kind of what you set out to do in these in these areas, including kind of a holistic approach, making sure that you have diverse panels, making sure that you interview diverse candidates as part of your pool and making sure you're reaching out and you're not just taking the first resume off the top of the pile. So we do want to hold people accountable. I think compensation, their bonus, People are very competitive about that at the end of the year, and they want to do well. And so we're going to make that a feature, good or bad. I think it's good. I mean, let's be honest. It, it's another tool that's a catalyst to change. And the bottom line can be a huge motivator for a lot of people. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing. Again, I think it, it is another tool or something else that makes people consciously think about it. Because at this point in time, that's what we need. We need these types of initiatives. So we're thinking about what are we doing? Are we being diverse? Are we being thoughtful? At some point, we won't really need to think about it because just by its nature, I hope 20 years from now, because of initiatives like this, some people will say that, that linking compensation to diversity is a bit too aggressive. I don't think it's aggressive at all. I mean, it, it, it's something that will you know, make you sit down and think about it. And, and it's a catalyst. So I, I think it's a great, a great criteria. I don't think it's the only one for sure. I think there are a lot of other things out there. It's just one piece of the larger puzzle. Amanda, briefly, your thoughts? So I think incentives are good. I think it is a positive step forward. However, in this particular environment, I don't think incentives will work entirely unless the organization is really helping that individual to find the right talent, to think about this differently. So I think it's not just a matter of saying, okay, go and, go and find diverse candidates. I think the firm needs to step up and say, here are some examples of organizations you could reach out to, or here's a way of thinking about it. So giving people a toolkit to know how do you go about it 
because otherwise you are going to set people up for failure. It's going to be like, well, we tried and we didn't succeed. Whereas actually, by really thinking from a solution perspective and giving those solutions to, to individuals, I think it, it works well. Look, at the end of the day, change happens because people believe that change is for the good, right? So ultimately, what we want to do is we want to engage men in a process where they become the advocates for diverse teams because they've seen the benefits. All right, let's talk about COVID. First of all, it's had an impact on the way we've worked. We've largely been working from home for the past nine to 12 months, depending on your jurisdiction. So how has that impacted diversity or kind of making sure that we give everybody an opportunity? We talked about putting people out there, putting them on panels, et cetera, giving them exposure. How has that impacted things? Potentially Zoom calls has been, you know, a, a great equalizer. And then let's talk a little bit your, briefly about your perspective on the future of work. What should the future of work look like as we all begin to go back with our brand new fancy vaccines? And what will the patterns be? And how do we make it sure that we're not creating a, a new discriminatory environment in a new future state of working? So Amanda, you want to start with that? Sure. So, so my perception is that COVID obviously produced some challenges uh, specifically for women, those were mainly related to, to childcare and, uh, you know, the responsibilities that women do have um, have become under, I think, increasing pressure. However, by and large, what I've seen are some very positive outcomes, particularly in the visibility stakes, because what we found is that by switching to online programming, which we did very early on because we didn't have to deal with getting all of our staff back home. We've always worked remotely. We've never had an office around the world. So we didn't have to handle that piece. So we could really turn our attention to how can we provide value to our members in this period where they are, where they're working remotely. So last year we put on over 150 events, which are all recorded now for our, in our archives. We had more female speakers last year than we've ever had. We had over 350 female speakers. And I think that is because they did not have to get on a plane, get, get on a train, get in an automobile to get to an event or to go to a conference. And they didn't have to get on the stage. There is a, there's a big difference between getting on that stage and being in front of a, a computer camera, right? So I think that women said yes to us much more frequently last year. And the other thing that I think has been fantastic from a visibility standpoint of COVID is perfectionism went out the window. Many women do not take opportunities to be visible until everything is perfect in their life. They look great, their performance is great, that, you know, Last year, perfectionism just didn't, well, even into this year, right? We saw newscasters who had to do their own makeup and their own hair and had to figure out a way of producing a show in their own home. So it created an environment where good enough is good enough when it came to, to those uh, situations. So that's one reflection on a very big positive out of COVID. I, what I'll tell you about the future of work is that I think there are many positives that have come out of this. First of all, the fact that we've, 
as an industry, we know we can work remotely. That actually this idea that you all have to be in an office in the same place at the same time is actually not the case. What I worry about slightly, where I think we I think firms have to be very deliberate, I do worry that women, and I'm generalizing here, that women will opt to spend more time remotely than men do. And that if we go back to a culture, a water cooler culture, where being there in the moment, and that's where the decisions get made, I worry that there's going to be a setup of a first class, second class citizenship. I think firms have to be deliberate about ensuring that important conversations include those that are out of the office that day and working remotely. So that's just one comment that I have. But I think it's doable. I just think we have to be very conscious of those kinds of dynamics. Tracy, what do you think about the future of work? Amanda raised a, a good point about those in the in the room and those not in the room. It's a very good point. And it's something that I actually talked about prior, believe it or not, prior to the pandemic. Because prior to the pandemic, I saw us moving, you know, at PIMCO, we were moving towards WebEx and having phones where you could link into WebEx and you didn't have to be in person as much, and which I thought was great because you didn't have to get on the plane all the time. It allowed more flexibility um, in the workplace, allowed women to still be at the table if they had to be somewhere else or could not come into the office and, and allowed them that voice, which is the positive factor. But I think what, what you tend to lose is that human connection, right? We can still talk virtually, but there's something about being in the same room and having those, I think we've all experienced it. Once a meeting's over, you have those small side conversations as you're walking out the door. And a lot of those times is when you have those conversations where post a big meeting, that certain side conversations take place where you continue to talk about it or you say, hey, let's go grab a cup of coffee and continue to talk about this topic. And it's very beneficial to, to what you're trying to do. And that can get lost. So I think we're going to be in a, an environment that everyone uses the word hybrid, but you know, I'll say a combination of all of that. And I think it is important. It's important to be mindful of and conscious of making sure the right people are at the table all the time. But I, I don't think you should just rely on other people doing it for you. You know, you have to take the initiative, right? You have to say, oh, once a meeting's over, what I do is I'll pick up the phone and I'll call someone because I know I can't walk down the hall with them. So once it's over, I'll call them. I'll say, hey, you know, let's talk about that a little more. So I think it's going to require a, a, a different way of thinking by everyone. Yeah. And we're trying to sort out the best way to serve our teams and bring the best and brightest together and make sure we have that momentum still. All right. In our wrap-up questions, uh, I'd like to kind of ask any advice you'd give a young person. And as a father of three daughters, one of which is a recent graduate and going into the workforce, I'm interested to know your thoughts on this. Would you recommend a career in finance for a young person today and why? It's a really good question. I would say absolutely I would recommend a career in finance to a young person. But I would tell them, don't think of finance as just one lens. There's so many different opportunities and so many different things you can excel at. What I would tell them is I would say it won't always be easy, right? But that's okay. 
if you stick with it, it can be rewarding. I would tell them that there will always be a network for them to lean on and help guide them along the way. Organizations such as Women in Derivatives, 100 Women in Finance, that, that didn't exist 20 years ago, but they do today. And they're only going to get better and they're only going to get stronger. So you can only imagine a young person today, 5, 10, 20 years into their career, how much they can thrive. So I would definitely recommend it. And I would say that we need to continue to develop leaders to keep paving the path. Amanda, what about uh, a career in finance? Yay or nay? I think as, a, as an industry, and I, I, and I say industry in the broadest sense, we have done a terrible job at communicating to the next generation of young women, not just the opportunities, but the impact that this industry can have on ordinary people. We give the impression right now to to young women that we are an industry that is about making rich people richer, that it's all about money, and it's the old boys club, and what social good are you doing? Well, it's one of the reasons why role models are so important and actually demystifying what we do. We're going to be adding to our visibility initiatives a female allocator visibility initiative. And I think this is really critical because if you look at women who are CIOs of endowments, foundations, public pension funds, with them telling their story of not just what they do, but the impact that they have on scholarships that can be offered to students who couldn't have gone to university, the opportunity in an investment office of a foundation to be able to scale up the good work of that charity. And the fact that we can provide good investment returns in a pension fund for teachers, for firefighters, for those who young people see every day, right? We've got to do a better job at communicating that aspect of what we do as a very broad industry. You know, the advice I always give to young women early in their career is two things. Number one, get out of the country in which you were born. Find an opportunity to work somewhere overseas. That changes people's perception of you and it changes the perception you have of yourself. And number two is to spend a lot of time talking to people who are outside of the role that you have. I believe that range of experience and range of knowledge will serve you really, really well as as a young woman in this industry. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Amanda and Tracy, thank you very much for joining us on The Swap. You're welcome. Thank you. Both Tracy and Amanda mentioned this isn't a problem that's going to be resolved overnight, but both talked about the importance and the usefulness of, of measurements. Scott, you mentioned that ISDA's signed up to the HMT Women in Finance Charter, which has led ISDA to make certain commitments and to measure those on a regular basis. Can you briefly talk a little bit about the commitments that ISDA's made as part of that? Sure. We've committed to increase female representation in the management positions at ISDA from 32% back in January of 2019 to over 40% in September 2021. 
On the board of directors, we also set a target to increase representation from 11% to 20% over the same time period. And frankly, the board will go beyond that, quite certain of that. So as of 2020, we reached 38% in senior management, and we have now achieved the board target of uh, 20% ahead of schedule. And as I noted, we'll continue to move the meter on these. Well, this is obviously a massively important topic, but we're just about out of time for this episode. If you're interested in learning more about Women in Derivatives or 100 Women in Finance, visit their websites, womenindiverivatives.org and 100women.org. And of course, do keep an eye out for our next episode when we'll be delving into other important derivatives market issues. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.